Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to part two of Understanding Prodependence, Moving Beyond Codependency. I hope you like it. Codependence came out of the 1980s theory of looking profoundly at early trauma. And I do want you to know, and this is not telling tales out of school, that every one of those books, Claudia Black's books, Pia Melody's books, Melody Beatty's books, all of those women talk about in their books that they had traumatic, abusive fathers. And all of those women married alcoholic or abusive husbands. But just because those were the experiences of the women who wrote those books does not mean that it is a universal experience for all of us. I wanna ask you honestly, do you think anyone ever married an addict or an alcoholic or someone who was later to become an addict or an alcoholic who didn't have a trauma history? Could it even be possible that a healthy person might marry someone like that? I think so. The biggest contender for what pushed codependency into becoming the hot white light it became in the 80s and 90s, and still to some degree, was the women's movement. You have to understand in late 1970s, the Equal Rights Amendment failed. Women were not going to have equal rights in the workplace. They were not going to have equal pay. We don't have it today. But codependency was the right message to women in the 1980s. Go individuate, self-actualize. Don't depend on men. Don't depend on anybody. Push through that glass ceiling. You can do it yourself, girl. That was the message. Now, do you think that was a message for men in the 1980s? Let's take a look at what it actually sounded like. Here's Melody Beatty in 1986 out of Codependent No More. She says, stop centering and focusing on other people. Settle down and in ourselves. Stop seeking so much approval and validation from others. We don't need the approval from everyone and anyone. We just need our own approval. Try that again. We just need our own approval. We all have the same sources for happiness and making choices inside of ourselves that others do. So find and develop your own internal supply of peace, well-being, and self-esteem. Good idea. But then relationships help, but they cannot be our source I don't really buy that because we're no longer seeing self-actualization as the primary focus of mental health treatment any longer. We're no longer living in a world that is the Me Too 80s, 90s generation. We're living in a period where attachment and connection 
is what matters. I'm not, to, I'm not only as good as my career and my job and the money I can make. I am also equally good if I am in relationship and loving my family and community. So this message doesn't carry through to me to today. Now, this was not, I promise you, a message for men in the 1980s because we were watching Top Gun. We were already king of the hill. We weren't worried about depending on anyone. But this was a siren song, codependency to women of that period. They were walking into that workplace with no rights and they could not care what a man thought of them. They had a fight through. If you want to think about what women were thinking about in, 19, in the early 1980s, look at nine to five. You know, um, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, and Dolly Parton. And here are three women who are specifically serving as secretaries or assistants, and they see how much better the business could be run. And there they are running around, pushing away Dabney Coleman, who was their boss, to try to get this idiot out of the way so these women could get things to go right. That was what women were doing in the early 1980s, shoving men aside to try to get ahead. Now, what's changed since 82 is attachment. Our focus on healing and mental health and addiction since the 1980s has turned from self-actualization as a measure of my health and success to my health being viewed in terms of the strength of my attachments, my relationships, my pair bonds, my family, my peer and community roles. Today, I am as strong as my connections. Listen to Brene, listen to Stan Tatkin, you know, listen to us. I mean, this is all the stuff we're talking about now. Today, I don't have to become the best me that I can be. I don't which, by the way, leans toward narcissism and individualism. But rather, in mental health and addiction, I think today, my goal is to be and became, to grow and maintain and become the best family member, the best part of my workplace, and the best community member that I can be. The me generation really has moved on. I think it's time to move on our treatment models. Now, in codependency treatment, it looks pretty simple. Treatment for loved ones of addicts who are codependent by definition because they're in relation to an active addict, require us to help such people by helping them understand their own trauma history right from the beginning, how it relates to why they chose this person, how they chose this person, why they stayed with this person and why they're acting in the ways they are because it is all perceived as being internal and their challenge. There isn't really much said in codependency literature about someone responding to the crisis of their family falling apart and they're not being able to fix it no matter what. Partners or parents are supposed to understand and note the unproductive ways in which their history has been playing out into their current relationships and thus inadvertently helping them to enable the addiction. Partners and parents have to acknowledge the ways that they are acting out themselves and they're acting out their own resolved, unresolved issues or worse today. And thus they're making everything worse with their incessant caregiving, enabling, enmeshing, manipulating, threatening, nagging, etc. They are seen as one of the sources of the problem. And I want to tell you something, all of you who are listening, I don't have any idea who are many in this room, but I want you to all hear this and know it. There is nothing that anyone can do to make an alcoholic drink. Nothing. I can be the worst alcoholic in the world and really have worked hard to get sober. And you yell at me and you fight with me because you're angry at me as my spouse. And I say, well, screw her. I'm going to go drink. That's on me. That has nothing to do with you. I could go play tennis. I could go for a walk. I could go socially distance. There are a lot of things I can do other than, fuck you, I'm going to go drink. That is the decision of the alcoholic, and it needs to remain in the hands of the addict. It never needs to be put in the hands of the spouse. I have seen too many addicts in the last 20 years say things like, well, I would get sober if my wife wasn't, wasn't so nagging and complaining and wasn't so codependent. Who could ever get sober in that circumstance? And people listen to that and believe it's true. Thus, 
Partners and parents need to detach under codependency, set boundaries, focus on themselves, and establish clear distance from the addict. Now, some of you may say to me, especially those who've been in the field for a long time, well, but Dr. Rob, nobody does codependency treatment like that anymore, which is not true. Most hospitals and treatment centers, which is where I'm directing this message, do do treat the codependency treatment just like we always did. But you will say if you've been in practice for 20 years, oh, well, I do it differently. And that's very nice. I'm glad you do it differently. I hope you're helping your clients. But which one of the 340 books on codependency is your work versed in and which version is the right one? Because this model's never been formalized. What are we teaching our students? In what paradigm and research is your new model based? Because I'm basing this in attachment. Is the way you work in such, with such families documented clearly so we can properly educate new professionals in the way you, as an older professional doing treatment, where did you learn to do what you do? You see, I think a rose is just a rose by any other name. And Revisions or adaptations to previously formalized treatment models cannot eliminate their original intent. To change original intent, you need a new model. All of the founding codependency literature places my own trauma history and trauma repetition at the core of my response to addiction or mental illness. And therefore it asks my own trauma repetition in my history and my past as a partner and a parent to be the focus of my early assessment and treatment. And I think that's wrong. Whatever you say about this model, it's still codependency. So I did three years of research, right? I had to do a PhD. And so I did a whole lot of questions on therapists and the therapists I, I chose to answer these questions were professionals who had been in the field of addiction for at least 20 years. All of them said that they had supervision or consultation in addiction work and that they had taken courses in the treatment of codependency. Now I have tons of questions about them that I could show you. Most of those are worked into this talk, but I just wanted to bring this one question to you because this is how all of the rest of this talk plays out. I simply said to these 68 addiction professionals, to what degree do you conceptualize the partners or spouses or parents of loved ones, the loved ones of an addict? To what degree do you conceptualize the partners and loved ones of, an, of addicts as being in the midst of a personal crisis in their first 60 days in therapy? So they have an active addict or a newly recovering addict in their life, and they've now just gone to see you in therapy is what I said to these therapists. How many of you think the person who's coming to see you, the parent, the caregiver, the sister, whatever it is, is in a crisis themselves? And the number I got was 91%. 91% of you therapists believe that the person who is married to or committed to or the parent of an active addict is in a major crisis, life crisis when they come to see us. Well, that made my life really easy because all I did was look at crisis counseling. This is what these people need when their loved one is in the hospital. This is what these people need when their loved one is still struggling with addiction because they're in a crisis. And until their family life has settled down, that person has gotten sober or they have left that family, they are in a crisis too. And they could be in a crisis for the next year and a half until that person gets sober. My job is to help them through the crisis, not ask them to question or doubt themselves. Crisis is a state of emotional turmoil or an acute emotional reaction to a powerful stimulus or demand. Now there are three characteristics of a crisis. You tell me if this meets your understanding of, the, of a parent or a partner or a loved one of an addict who's actively using. One, the usual balance between thinking and emotion is disturbed, meaning that partner is acting deeply out of their emotional self and being highly reactive or 
Um, they are just really being intellectual and shut off, but either one is not really solving the problem or helping them. They're using usual coping mechanisms have failed, going to the gym, hanging out with friends, that's just not enough, they're overwhelmed. And finally, there's evidence of impairment in an individual or family member. These are the criteria of a crisis. So if these are the criteria of a crisis, I think this is where our partners and family members are when they walk in to see us in any treatment center. Crisis intervention methods are meant to provide help to individuals during a period of extreme stress. It's a focused kind of work. And the interventions within it are by design, they're temporary, they're active, they're supportive, and they have nothing to do with looking at the past. This is crisis counseling defined. And I took, this is not, these are none of these are my words. I took all the words of people who wrote about crisis counseling and put them together. And here basically is it. In crisis counseling, whether it's an earthquake, a tsunami, or your loved one is an addict and you can't get them to get well, you have to keep it simple. When people are in a crisis, they respond best to simple procedures. Here's what you do, here's how you handle it. Simple things have the best chance of having a positive effect. Number two, be brief and clear. Psychological first aid for people in a crisis needs to remain short. Offer useful, concrete direction and support. I didn't write this. Keep it practical, as impractical suggestions can cause the person to feel more frustrated and thus more out of control. Work in the here and now. Clients in a crisis don't have the psychological sophistication to engage in in-depth clinical evaluations or discussions of their past. Remain focused on the problems at hand. Offer hope. That is what we're supposed to do in crisis counseling, not ask about the past, not explore their difficulties. Now, listen, if somebody, a year into this process, when their partner has gotten sober and life is going better, either you come to them or they come to you and say, you know, there were some strange things you were doing when that person was using. You want to talk about that and look back now that they're sober? Go for it. And if you really want to call that codependency treatment, I don't see it as that. But if you want to call it that, go for it. But don't tell me that the partner or loved one who's coming to the hospital to try to get this person sober is codependent. Because I know and certainly don't tell them that because they're already feeling terrible about themselves, horrible that their family couldn't get better, embarrassed, humiliated, and frustrated, and they don't need to be hearing any more bad news, especially about themselves. When the spouse or a loved one of an active addict or mentally ill person walks into my office, I see them solely as a person in the midst of a profound life crisis, which is not of their own making, one that any one of us would have little ability to solve on our own. By definition, this partner, this parent has been victimized by be repeated betrayals, um, lying, cheating, manipulating, all the stuff that addicts do to keep using. And they have been victimized by the person that they love because that's the person who's stealing their jewelry. And yet this is someone with whom they shared a deep and trusting bond. Their trust is not broken by the addiction itself that they, you use and you drink. That hurts and makes me angry, but the, it's the lying. It's the manipulations, it's the seduction, it's what all the stuff you do to keep on using that makes me crazy. Because I don't know, you said you're going home at 6.30, but now it's 8.30. And now you're telling me that you never said you're going home at 6.30. That's gaslighting. That's what an addict does to make a partner to get away with what they're doing and have a partner not be suspicious. But what does that do to the partner? That's really hard on them to be lied over and over again, manipulated. I would imagine that might make someone a little crazy. I strongly believe that people in the midst of a profound life crisis need crisis counseling methods 
not analytic, not exploratory evaluations, not interventions, as these experiences often feel to them blaming, intrusive, painful, counterintuitive, and distracting. I'm offering you a completely 180 degree turn on how we perceive this population. I'm asking you to take codependency and completely flip it on this ear. Rather than seeing these people as innately troubled, let's see them as incredibly strong. Prodependence is an attachment-based theory of human dependency, which states that those who partner with an active addict or a mentally ill person are no more or less than loving people who are caught up in circumstances beyond their own ability to cope. Moreover, their desire to help the addict and all, like bringing home bottles, all related actions toward trying to help the addict, useful or not, only demonstrate a normal and healthy attempt to remain attached to a failing loved one while simultaneously facing extraordinarily difficult circumstances. Protopendence is a treatment lens through which I believe we can much more compassionately view loved ones and attached caregivers of addicts because we need to, because we, through this model, our focus is their strengths, not their past trauma. Prodependence is not a label. Nobody's prodependent. It's not a pathology. It's not something you describe in terms of illness. It's a theory of relationship. It's a theory of relationship that basically says when you're deeply attached to a loved one for a period of time, you probably will do anything to help them, including giving up yourself. And that is probably a good thing because the people who love me when I'm ill, I think are heroes. And the people who show up and consistently show up when I'm struggling are, are people I will love forever, not people I'm going to call sick. Prodependence does recognize that if a caregiver's actions, which are only given out of love or frustration and anger, which is love, that they can run off the rails and they can become counterproductive to sobriety. But then I can just work with the person to put those measures back on track. I don't have to blame them or shame them or give them a negative label for why they brought home models. I can just say, well, that was a clever idea, but it didn't really work. Why don't we try this? And then the person feels validated for the attempt they made, even though it didn't work, rather than blame. Prodependence does not imply that any caregiver's dysfunctional behaviors right, uh, arise out of their past trauma or their pathologies. To treat loved ones of addicts or the mentally ill using prodependence, we do not need to find anything wrong with the partner or the parent or whomever the caregiver is. We simply acknowledge the trauma that they've been through and the inherent dysfunction and pain that comes from living with someone you love and you can't make them better like an active addict. I hope you're enjoying this two-part podcast on understanding pro-dependence. If you need help in this area, please reach out to Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs at www.seekingintegrity.com. What I try to do now, and I can't tell you I do it consistently, and I can't tell you it's easy, is to say to the addicts in my life, that I want to deepen the connection with them, to say to them, I love you, whether you're using or you're not. I love you, whatever state you're in. And if you need me, I'll come and sit with you because I love you and I don't want you to be alone or to feel alone. And I think the core of that message, you're not alone, we love you, has to be at every level of how we respond to addicts, socially, politically and individually. For a 100 years now, we've been singing war songs about addicts. I think all along we should have been singing love songs to them because 
the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. So that's Johanna Hari talking uh, in his TED Talk. What I want to say to you about that is when you listen to Sue Johnson, when you listen to Brene Brown, when you listen to Stan Tackin, when you listen to my work, this is what we're all talking about. And let me tell you where my little place in the field exists. I have taken these attachment-based theories and this relational work and put it into one particular environment, the addiction and mental health environment in terms of partners and spouses. I'm interested in what's going on with the attachment and love process when someone that, that you love is failing and you can't make it better. And that really for me in pro-dependence is a model that I consider to be bringing the way we view partners and family members into the 21st century by making an attachment-based model, not a trauma-based model. Yes, the partners are responding to trauma, but the trauma is about their attachment to the person they love and the failure of that attachment, not about what happened to them when they were four. Now, they may be reenacting things that happened when they were four, but they're not doing it just because they're married to an addict. They're doing it because they're in a crisis. Now, to my peers, to you guys, I want to say I've worked in residential treatment centers for 25 years. I have one of my own. And I can tell you that I've sat in so many nursing stations and uh, in you know, group supervision, hearing things about family members like this. The loving family member that comes to the hospital and tries to, or the treatment center or comes into your office to try to help the person that they love. And we say things like, well, that mom's just sicker than her kid. She won't let him go. As if any parent should ever be asked to let a child go. I worry about her home, going home with her brother. He's a born rescuer. Well, if I was going home with someone, I would hope they were a born rescuer. I hear therapists saying things like, I worry about her going home. Oh, sorry. That wife is so focused on his drinking. She doesn't see her part. What if she doesn't have a part? <laughs> Maybe if her part was just trying to make it better and she couldn't. What if love, and so here's the whole bottom line for you guys. What if the loved ones of addicts are not difficult to treat at all? And the problem has lain more in how we conceptualize them. What if our primary and sole therapy model for these people, which is codependency, has left these clients feeling misunderstood, marginalized, confused, and more ashamed than when they started? Why leave someone who has loved and loved and loved to try to help some in whatever way they could to try to help someone they care about get better? Why would you ever leave that person doubting themselves at all? Why would you prejudge the loved one, a loved one as codependent or in any way as drivers of dysfunctional system? Because my friends, it is a basic mental health theory that we do not apply any kind of label or diagnosis to someone who's in a crisis because we understand that someone's in a crisis is acting crazy. So we don't say, oh, they must be borderline or they must be codependent or whatever, because we don't know who they were four years ago. We don't know who they are when they're in their norm. So I have learned that I don't diagnose people when they're in a crisis. I watch them and I listen to them and I learn about them. And I certainly don't do anything to make them question themselves. What happens if this diagnosis that we've given them, this label of codependent, because it's not a diagnosis, and the treatment that follows up it and has followed it for 30 years pushes partners and family members and parents to feeling more misunderstood and thus becoming defensive. Why not focus on the family member's strengths while also being where they are from day one? I think this is a much more productive way to work with these folks. It doesn't meet our deep need to help as therapists, people dig it out and get it out there because then it's going to make them better. No, it doesn't meet that need that we have. 
but by focusing on their strengths and giving them endless support, they feel better. They recover faster and their families do better. I know this, I'm researching it. Under Pro-Dependence, which is a book, <laughs> Pro-Dependence, Moving Beyond Codependency, a book written to try to, to shift us from codependency as a model for treating the addictions and the family members of addictions to a different model. Under Pro-Dependence, I believe that we can refocus every single action of a painful, hurting loved one through a lens of strength-based attachment. And thus, we literally reframe their deficits as strengths. So here on the left are the words of codependency. Here are the words of pro-dependence. So where you might say, oh, that woman is so enmeshed, I would say, my goodness, she's deeply involved with her family. God love her. You might say, well, she's externally focused. She's putting all those problems on the addict. I would say, I think she's quite well the situation in hand. And she's right. The problem is the addict. Things were fine until they started using and drinking. And things will probably be fine when they stop. So guess what? The problem is the addict. Let's stay, keep focused on where the problem is. Some of you will say she's enabling. I will say she's incredibly supportive. You'll say she's fearful. I say she's deeply concerned for those she loves. You'll say she has no healthy boundaries. I will say she is so eager to care for that person she loves. She'll do things that don't even make any sense to her. You can say to me, she will not stop fixing or he. And I will say they'll do anything they can to help somebody they love, wouldn't you? Codependency says they're obsessed with the addict. I say they're obsessed with the drinking and the using, not the person. They want to heal their family. They're obsessed with the healing of their family. Wouldn't you be? Codependency says they're living in denial. I think that they see the problem all too clearly. They're not staying with that person that they love because they're codependent and reenacting trauma. They're staying with that person because they still love them. Just because someone turns into a mess doesn't mean I still don't see how I love them, how we loved each other, the good that we shared. And furthermore, that I don't hold the hope that if you get well, we might have that again. So I am holding on to the vision of what we shared in the past, the best of you, the you I know you were when you were healthy. I think that is the part of partner I would want to has visions of me in a good way moving back in that direction. And therefore they are determined to take care of me. They're not living in denial. They're not controlling and nagging. I mean, they look like they're controlling and nagging, but what's really going on is they're terrified. They're afraid that things are gonna get worse. And by the way, they have a history of things getting worse. So they're not, there's a, a reason why they feel that way. You might call them raging and nagging. I see them as someone who's desperately trying to produce an effect in a situation that's not changing no matter how hard they try. You may see them as hypervigilant. I will see them as anticipating problems because they've already had problems and they think more are coming. And I think that's a strength to be able to anticipate problems. You say to me as therapists, well, what about their trauma history? And I say, here's an idea, let it wait. Don't you think there's plenty of trauma to go around here and now if you live with an active addict or a mentally ill person? Why not give these partners and parents and loved ones and wives and husbands the grace to come to us when or if they ever become ready to self-explore and self-examine? Why do we have to force it on them in the moment of their greatest crisis? Oh, look at yourself. I think it's what we do is intrusive. I think we take the person who's in a crisis and we ask, ask them to redirect in a way that doesn't make sense to them and makes them feel bad. We can help these people with the problem they have right now without lengthy explorations of their own painful past, unconscious things they don't know about, uh, and make them and, and surrounding thereby surrounding them with self-doubt. 
They already feel like they're the problem. We just make them feel more like they're the problem. And folks, they are not the problem. They would have been pretty fine all along if that person just hadn't started drinking. Now, the messages that came out of the codependency movement, I am all behind. Self-care, self-care, self-care. I do want to teach and support these partners and family members to have better self-care, better boundaries, to picking the right battles. I want them to assert healthy anger. I want to teach teach these people it's okay to love and hate someone at the same time because I think ambivalent love is something we feel towards someone who's hurt us. I want to teach them to avoid violence and verbal abuse. I want to help them identify help. I want to give them peer support. I want to give them education and insight. I want to help them process their grief about how their life has turned out. I want to restore them to healthy coping. And I want to manage their fear, their entitlement, and their rage. And that list, my friends, is plenty to do with someone in the first year of recovering from living in an active crisis with an addict who's not getting well. How is the addict affected by these models? How do addicts feel about codependency? Here's a thought for you. If I'm an addict and I think about codependency deeply, it really means that anyone who chose to love me must have been very troubled themselves or otherwise they never would have loved me because I'm so broken, a healthier person never would have picked me. That is what codependency says. And further, if you were healthier, my partner, my parent, or whoever it is, you never would have focused on me or paired with me because you would have seen my problems you would have left a long time ago if you'd been healthier. I don't think that's true. Versus, here's how what goes on for the addict under pro-dependence. One, oh my God, despite all this horrible stuff that I have done, this man or woman decided to stay with me? Maybe there's something good about me that they don't see because I think a healthier person would have left me. But maybe if they're staying, maybe there's something they see in me that might get some love in me, some good in me that I don't see right now, but maybe they're staying and I have the hope that I could get to that and we could be that together again. What if this person who loves me is holding on to the good in me, the thing that they believe is just waiting to recover and reappear when I get sober? To me, that's what pro-dependence does. It makes my partner not sick for staying with me, but as being the person who holds on to the vision of who we have been and who we might be. And finally, I want to say to you, when did loving someone, especially a troubled person, become a pathology? If you love too much, then please come by my house because I want you in my life as much as possible. At Thanksgiving, I want all the people who love too much because they make their best stuffing. They play the best cards. They want to stay up late at night and have fun. I love people who love too much and I want more of them in my life. I want to become someone who loves so much. Now you can, and this is important to note, you can love inadequately. You can choose partners based more on emotion than thought. You can love where no love is earned back or offered back. You can love in ways that are unproductive to yourself and to other relationships. You can love in ways that mirror past problems and trauma. You can love the wrong people. You can love in ways that unknowingly cause more harm than good. You can. You can love people who cannot and do not love you back. But don't tell me ever that we can love too much because love just is. And where we go with it and how we manage it, maybe we need some guidance and support, but please don't ever pathologize someone for the way they love someone, for the depth of love they feel someone for someone or the actions they've taken to support the person they love. Because I think that is an extreme form of help. And with that, I'm going to say I've written a bunch of books. I've written, uh, I, well, this is just a few of them, some books on sex addiction and, code, uh, and then pro-dependence. 
I also have a treatment center, and I just want to say this, called Seeking Integrity. And we are very specialized. We treat, we're only six beds. Everybody gets their own bedroom, their own bathroom, and we're very affordable. And all we treat is men who have sexual issues or men who pair drug and sex issues like meth and sex and alcohol and sex, stuff like that. And please think of us if you're making referrals. For the next uh, 20 minutes, um, Keith will moderate the questions and I'll answer them. So just a, a couple of comments. One uh, from Janet Mason. She said she's also seen treatment programs swing the other direction. Many don't try to help the family at all. They talk about it being a family disease, but then they cut off the family completely out of treatment, creating the same effect as trying to treat the family member. Lack of connection feeling more out of control and confused. So do you want to talk a little bit about involving the family? Well, only that, you know, and Keith and I have both seen this, you know, we've seen a world of plenty where our field was flush with money. We've seen it where it was empty and insurance didn't pay anything. And, you know, I've been inside clinical programs long enough to know that if they're not making money or surviving, then family members are going to be left home because there's not the money to treat them or we're not prioritizing their needs. So, I always think that these questions come back to how much effort, time, and money are we willing to put into the meaningful care of the people we treat. I will say something, Keith, while we're just waiting for questions. Yes. I get questions about Al-Anon and CODA. Like, well, I always send people to those support groups. How do, what do I do now? And this is how I would say that. I, I think certainly Al-Anon is a wonderful program. And Al-Anon, by the way, never implied that you were addicted to your husband or wife. It always said you were addicted to the obsession of their drinking. So Al-Anon got it right from the beginning. But here's the thing. I wouldn't send someone to, I would not send a client to one of those groups until they had fully internalized in the work with me or you that this is not their fault, that there's nothing they could have done to make it better because there isn't. And once you get that in them, then they can go to meetings because there's so much in Al-Anon, not in Al-Anon, but in the folks around who are like, we well, got to look at your part. You got to look how you're broken. And that's hard. People have to really be able to hold on to themselves in that arena before they can go there and not say, well, maybe what I learned is wrong and then start doubting themselves. Excellent. And Rob, given this time of isolation, social distancing, you know, that, that goes against pro-dependency, reaching out. What are you seeing and how are people staying connected? Well, I mean, I think we're all having... Those of us who, who can make ourselves comfortable with technology, I mean, I see it everywhere. I see it absolutely. First of all, I think it's a very pro-dependent time because I got to get along with my husband. I got along with him in the morning, in the evening. I got to figure out how to make it work. You know, I'm used to us having six or eight hours a day where we don't have to look at each other. Now we're together all the time. So learning to negotiate um, dependency is what pro-dependence is all about. You know, Keith, I wrote a chapter in this book. It's my favorite chapter. It's called Twos Don't Marry Sevens. And what I mean by that is if you are an emotional two, you know, you've got issues, you're at it, you're addicted, you're struggling, and you look at that person who's an eight and they've got their poop together, you might think you want to marry them, get involved with them, date them, but the truth is you never will. Because every two or three I've ever met looks at that eight and says, Oh my God, they're so boring. And then if you're an eight or a nine and you got your poop together, you don't want to look at that person, you look at that two or three emotional addict person, you say, Oh my God, they're much too much work. So twos don't ever marry sevens. Twos and threes, we're going to marry each other. Part of the belief system behind pro-dependence says, and I truly within my soul believe this, that two broken people working to heal together are going to get further than individuals trying to heal by themselves. I am stronger healing my relationship with my spouse, with my family, than I'm ever going to be healing it by myself. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rob. Live long and prosper.
Thank you for listening to this two-part series on pro-dependence. There'll be more good information coming up very soon. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chemsex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.